Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, what will Afghanistan look like after America's departure? And joining us now to discuss that is the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Max Boot, the Gene J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Max, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, we start this conversation in the context of major troop withdrawals from Afghanistan this year. The American efforts there were winding to a close about 13 years after the war began. And when we think about what the future will look like there, there is a fatalistic case that turns on the cliche that everyone seems to have internalized over the last decade or so, that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. The British were hamstrung by it. The Soviets were overmatched by it. And inevitably, despite our most valiant efforts, we too are going to come to an unhappy end there. It's an argument that's advanced in almost deterministic terms. Um, do you buy it? I think it's a little bit oversimplified uh, because, in fact, if you if you look at the history of foreign powers in Afghanistan, you will see that, yes, in fact, they have had a difficult time occupying and pacifying Afghanistan, which is a large mountainous country, very difficult to control. But nevertheless, if you look at the experience of the two most recent empires there before we entered, that would be the British in the 19th century and the Soviets in the 1980s. You can nevertheless conclude that they more or less achieved their objectives even after pulling out their uh, troops because they managed to project influence and power working through uh, an indigenous regime in Kabul. And that's a model that I think we need to think about uh, as we think about, about the future of Afghanistan after the withdrawal of most American troops later this year. So the way to think about it is – it's definitely a difficult prospect, but in no way is an impossible one. Is that a fair way to put it? I would I would certainly agree with that formulation. I mean, I think the key really is how much support do you provide to the regime in power? I mean, the British, after the debacle of the first Afghan war from 1839 to 1842, managed to more or less achieve their objectives in, in Afghanistan for the next 60 or so years, uh, keeping Russian influence out, uh, essentially making Afghan foreign policy uh, subject to the authority of the, of the British Raj. They did that by backing a succession of, of kings in Kabul. And the Russians did pretty much the same thing after they pulled out their troops in 1989. They backed Najibullah, uh, their chosen leader, and he stayed in power for several more years until the Soviet Union finally collapsed, the subsidies ended, and the Mujahideen were able to march into into Kabul. Uh, but that, you know, that's, that's, that's a cautionary tale for us of what happens if you cut off support for an allied regime in, in Kabul. Uh, the results of that can be catastrophic. So let's talk about the difficulty of holding the country together. At, at Strategica, you talk about the fact that Hamid Karzai, when he first took power as president of Afghanistan, didn't have much real influence. All, all the power centers still resided with the warlords because they quite literally had him outgunned. They had more and better armed men than the government did. And you note a conversation that Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, had with Karzai 
where he suggested that he learn how to govern uh, the Chicago way, i.e., you know, using the carrots and sticks of patronage to command some difference, which Karzai turned out to be pretty good at. As now the big complaint is how shot through with corruption his government is, right. and that corruption in turn, of course, breeds a lot of resistance to the government. So, was the problem there with Rumsfeld's Chicago suggestion in the first place, or with how Karzai actually went about implementing that? By which I mean, is, is there a way that Karzai could have utilized? That sort of approach as a means of consolidating power without it coming back to Biden? I don't think so because Afghanistan is just a, as as Karzai found it in, in 2002, it was just a very lawless place. And the warlords, as you say, uh, had the most armed men. And so you basically had to, if he was not going to receive support from the United States or some external power, uh, uh, he basically had to make deals with the warlords, and the price of that of the, those deals was to turn a blind eye uh, to their massive corruption, their involvement in the drug trade, and lots of other rackets, their shakedowns of Afghan citizens, and so forth. That was the, essentially the price that Karzai paid uh, to stay in power for the last decade. But I think it is possible. You know, Afghanistan is going to have a, another election, and I think. It is possible for whoever emerges out of that process to govern in a slightly different way because, you know, now uh, the next president of Afghanistan is going to have a substantial army and police force, you know, more than 350,000 strong uh, at his command. That is, in fact, now the most powerful military force in Afghanistan. It's not the Taliban. It's not the warlords. It's the Afghan army. And but, you know, of course, the Afghan army itself has huge struggles with corruption and other issues. But I think it is possible for whoever succeeds Karzai to lean more on on his military and police power and to be a little bit less corrupt and to be a little bit more of a visionary leader than I think uh, Hamid Karzai has turned out to be. Max, what do you make as we approach the end of our major military presence in Afghanistan of the approach that the Obama administration took there? Because you had a you had a significant expansion of the troop presence there and the application of counterinsurgency and, and yet you also had a quick timetable to unwind the whole thing. You don't really see anyone calling it an unambiguous success, but should we reckon it a failure? Was it partially successful? How do you grade it out? I would grade it out as a partial success. I think the policy was schizophrenic from the start because on the one hand, Obama tripled U.S. troop presence up to 100,000 troops. But on the other hand, he put a timeline on most of their deployment of 18 months, which is way too soon to get real results in a counterinsurgency campaign, which can take years. As a result of the limitations that Obama put on, on the campaign, I think U.S. troops with their Afghan allies made real progress in the South, which was the focus of operations in Helmand and Kandahar. Unfortunately, they never had time or resources to make similar progress in the East, which is why you now have the Taliban operating with virtual impunity an hour or two drive from, from Kabul. You still have Taliban strongholds not that far from the capital uh, because U.S. commanders were never given the time and resources to clean those out in the way that they cleaned out Taliban strongholds in southern Afghanistan. So, you know, we're, we're pulling the bulk of our troops out at a point where the Taliban remain a substantial threat, not as big of a threat, I would say, as they were in 2009 when the buildup began, but still a substantial threat. But one that I think that the Afghan security forces are basically strong enough to counter on their own 
as long as we continue to provide them considerable financial support as well as advice, uh, training, support with logistics, intelligence, uh, air support, other functions where they just don't have the capacity to be effective. We talked earlier about the graveyard of empires shibboleth, uh, another sort of reflexive cliche. It's died out a little bit in recent years, but the smart set in foreign policy circles used to always say there's no solving the Afghanistan problem without also addressing the Pakistan problem. As we look towards a future where our direct involvement in Afghanistan is markedly lighter than it has been in the past, how significant is the role that Pakistan plays in Afghanistan's future? Well, Pakistan has has played an important role and I think will continue to play an important role, unfortunately, largely a negative one as a patron of the Taliban, a movement that the Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence uh, Agency essentially created or helped to bring into being in the 1990s and has continued to support to this present day. I mean, I think the argument that we need to solve the, the Pakistan problem to solve Afghanistan on some level is true, but, you know, it's, it's not helpful because nobody has a solution to the Pakistan problem. What do you do about it? We've tried everything over the course of the last decade plus and nothing has worked. So I think we just have to accept that Pakistan is not going to be a constructive player in Afghanistan. They're going to be, in fact, destructive to the extent that they continue backing the Taliban and the Haqqanis and other insurgent groups, which I think they will continue to do. But that doesn't mean that Afghanistan cannot succeed because ultimately those groups will only find traction in Afghanistan if the people of Afghanistan are alienated from their own government and they think that the Taliban can offer them a better deal. Uh, if Afghanistan has even a, 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 a modicum of decent government and effective security, then I don't think that the Taliban or the Khanis or others can shoot their way back into power, no matter how much support they get from Pakistan. So... Max, final question. If, if we concede that we're living in a second best or maybe third best world uh, with Afghanistan, where we'll probably never get anywhere close to the best possible outcome, um, what does the good enough outcome look like and, and what do we have to do to get there? Well, I think the good enough outcome is that you have a functioning government in Afghanistan, uh, one that primarily is able to keep the Taliban uh, from taking over substantial portions of its territory. I mean, if they have isolated strongholds here and there, it's not a big deal. But you certainly don't want to see major cities like Kandahar uh, falling uh, to the Taliban. I think that would be disastrous because then you would be seeing the reestablishment of this uh, jihadist emirate uh, that would be in cahoots with al-Qaeda and would endanger the security not only of Afghanistan but also of Pakistan. And I think it's, it's, it's possible to prevent that, that worst-case scenario. I think really at this point all we really need to do is to provide sufficient support to the Afghan security forces, which in the short term means spending you know, $5, $6 billion a year probably to support the Afghan uh, security forces, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's, it's well down from the $100 billion a year that we were spending at the height of the surge. And along with that, I think we need to keep at least 10,000 troops as trainers and advisors and a, a small targeted counterterrorism force from the Special Operations Command. We need to keep that in Afghanistan for the next few years. And if we do that, I think Afghanistan has a reasonable chance of surviving as a unitary state and, and holding off the, the continuing challenge of the Taliban insurgency. Just a, a quick follow-up to that, actually, because you mentioned in your piece the uh, approach recommended by Vice President Biden, which argues for 
a much smaller commitment than that. Just to, to put in context how important the, the calibration is, I mean you you just defined a, a certain size force. Biden's recommendation obviously is substantially lower than that. In terms of security, I mean is the Biden proposal for a few thousand troops, is that – is that worse than nothing at all? I mean does that get you in a situation that is, is so unpalatable that it would just be better not to be there by contrast? I'm not sure that I would go that far, but I do think that sending only one or 2,000 special operators is not really tenable because you know, to be effective, the special operations forces need an infrastructure in place. They need quick reaction forces. They need medevac. They need intelligence, all this kind of stuff which you can't generate if the whole country is falling down around your ears. You need to have a support infrastructure in place to make these tremendous special operators from the Joint Special Operations Command effective. And to do that, I think you basically need an infrastructure of at least 10,000 troops. I would say probably more, actually, but 10,000 at a minimum. Uh, if, you know, if you only send one or 2,000, they're not going to be able to get the job done. And I'm not even confident that the, that the government in Afghanistan would let them be there because you know, the government in Afghanistan, their primary int- primary interest is not in hunting down al-Qaeda, which is our, you know, our interest. Uh, their interest is in keeping themselves in power. And if we're not contributing to keeping them in power, why should they take all the nationalist backlash from hosting a small number of American special operators? So to my mind, that is an option that has very little chance of, of working. All right. Our guest has been Max Boot, the Gene J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. You can read his piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.